Esther chapter 6. How many of you think that it's possible that there's still dinosaurs alive somewhere on earth? Not real likely. You know, they actually, uh, remember the Loch Ness Monster, how big that was? And they went through with sonar equipment, went through the entire lake and, and sort of proved there's no big monster in there, at least anymore. Maybe he got eaten by something bigger that flew away. What's that? But we were talking about that in the family drive this week. You parents will appreciate this. And Simeon looks at me on all seriousness. He didn't get why this was funny. He looks at me and he's like, Dad, when you were a boy, were there actual dinosaurs walking around? My wife starts laughing and he doesn't get why this is funny. I said, son, I'm going to try not to be offended by the question. I'll just answer it. (laughs) No. (laughs) No pet pterodactyl in a cage named Polly. Polly want a cracker? Um, Anyways, who knows? There could be, right? uh, You ever wonder what animals would be in the new heaven and new earth? There's horses. We know that. The Lord comes out of heaven on one, and the believers follow him on horses. There are horses. Montanans ought to say amen to that one. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be other animals. Probably animals we've never... There'll probably be animals we've never heard of. I mean, there's no limit to God's creativity. It's not like he ran out of ideas with the original creation. There, I think... I, I, can't, I can't prove it. I can't say it dogmatically. I guess I'm saying it's very, very possible and probably likely. Um... There'll be a lot of things different. The laws of physics will be different. You know, the Lord's rearranged DNA went right through walls. Uh, will we be able to fly? Probably. You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it, it's... You think of the vastness of this creation, the complexity of it, the brilliance of it. That's not even a speck of God's wisdom. Not even a speck. So why wouldn't the permanent new heaven and new earth be so much more complex and beautiful? And I think that kind of stands to reason. Um, Anyways, side note. All right, we're in Esther 6. And uh, next week, Lord willing, or maybe the week after, we'll try to wrap up this uh, return phase. Okay, so we're dealing with uh, the axe is falling on Haman. And uh, we've been... Any of you kind of sick of Haman yet? Exactly. She said when she reads through the Bible, it's one of those books that just captures your attention. I agree. Um, the story of Joseph is like that. Um, Yep, yep, yep. Yep. Divide and conquer. It's I'm I'm thankful for narratives, for historical narratives that are I don't want to use the word entertaining, but again, God has employed so many different methods of giving us his word. I dare say if you and I were 
we didn't know the Bible at all, and we're told, how do you think God communicated himself to mankind in written form? I would never guess it would be like this. 40 human authors, 1,500 years, 66 different distinct books giving one message, and using song and, and poetry and narrative and lists of commands and warm personal letters and prophecy, predictive prophecy. It's, it's really an astounding thing. And uh, these, these narratives are, they are fascinating, but they're not just fascinating, they're fascinating with the purpose. And more than just, you know, you can read some book and say, oh, I you know, I read Hudson Taylor's biography, it inspired me, but that, that is not inspired in the sense of authoritative. It's, it has errors in it. His thinking was inaccurate. God's responses as man understood them weren't accurate. So uh, we come to a story like this, and again, what are, what are some of the central lessons in Esther? How, wh what makes the book of Esther unique? Review, but what, what's one of the things that makes it unique? God is not mentioned. What's the other book of the Bible like that? There's one more. Now this one's debatable depending on how you see the allegory, but which, what other book? Song of, Song of Solomon. Um, now again, is that poetic references to Christ? There's a lot of discussion on that. I think on the surface, it's, it's Solomon and the Shulamite bride. Uh, can you make applications? Yes. But is it directly written to Christ as the husband? I personally would say no. Um, I, I think it's uh, the direct primary interpretation is uh, things relating to marriage. But why is that important in the book of Esther? That God is not mentioned. Why in the world would God inspire a book like that? I mean, does that... Are there not times in our life where if we're honest, you'd say, well, my history this week, God hasn't been mentioned. Meaning, I didn't see Him there. I mean, I... I didn't come up with any flashy new or old interpretations that flashed like they were new. Uh, my prayer life wasn't vibrant. The things that happened, I can't explain. I wouldn't call it a good week, somebody says. Where was God? Uh, well, we've been going through the Jews. I wouldn't call it a good start to the new year. And you and I get sick of Haman reading through them in a few chapters. I guarantee you they were quite sick of Haman uh, by the time this reached its apex. And so God deliberately marches them into a situation and and, and I don't I don't mean this irreverently at all. He does this for our own good. But if I were I'm not going to do this, but let's say we were to get a um, let's just hand out paper and say, all right, let, let's let think of all the times you can think of where God took one of his people or nation, one of his disciples, put them in a box as far as where they couldn't fix their situation for a while. And then it was like he kept turning up the heat. What are, who can you think of like that? There's a lot of them. Who? Hey, come on, give me some examples. What's that? Happened to Paul, that's for sure. And Paul said he despaired even of life. Wait a minute, I thought Paul walked on clouds all the time. And Paul was so depressed he'd rather die than be where he was? Yes. Who else? Joseph and Mary it happened to. Yes? How about the other Joseph? Who else? It'll happen to Elijah. 
That is, I love that passage, 1 Kings 19. Because it just shows his humanity. This is the guy that was so bold and calls down fire from heaven, slays hundreds of false prophets, and then one wicked woman threatens him. Off he goes. It shows how quickly our boldness can vanish when we turn inward and think we produced it. Gone. Who else? Did it happen to Jeremiah? Uh, did it happen to, how about the sweet psalmist of Israel? Did it happen to David ever? Long before he was king. And the amazing thing with him is he had more than one opportunity to fix it his way. Uh, the human temptation. And, okay, let me put it this way. David and uh, the way he responded to Saul in the cave. And Abraham and Sarah, or Abraham and Hagar, are those very similar in principle? They are. How so? A sustained trial that does not make sense. It seems to contradict God's character. Seems to. And you're presented with an opportunity to fix it by human wisdom, not God's. And uh, David's choice was, I mean, even his men are saying, hey, I'll kill him. Give me that spear. You don't even have to do it. I'll do it. David says, no, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed, which, by the way, is a king, <laughs> right? David was willing to rebuke his sin, too. It didn't mean he wouldn't correct him. But David wouldn't do it. Abraham would do it. He would bow to cultural wisdom and fix it himself. So that scene replays over and over and over and over and over again at different forms, different actors, but there's always a temptation to fix it our way. I suppose uh, here in Esther... They could have, I don't know what they could have done their way, they plot an underground revolt of some sort. Uh, but they pray or they fast. It doesn't actually say they pray. Now it's insinuated. We can look and say, obviously, the Jews would have connected fasting and prayer. But they just said fasting. And uh, again, God is, it's so hard for us to understand that God is the God of the commonplace. And not just that, that's his preferred method. Or maybe I should say, as we see it, that's his normal methodology. If we're not, by the way, this is why understanding chronology in the Bible is important. If you look at, let's say you look at Abraham's life. I remember years ago seeing it. I wish I could find it again. But it was a chronology of Abraham's life and God's appearances to him. And, and so you read through Genesis and you're tempted to think, well, Abraham just talked to God all the time. I mean, he, he, God just spoke to him constantly. That was easy. But then you look at the, the length of the man's life, 175 years, and the amount of time where God didn't appear, even before the Bible was written, where it was silence. There was a lot of time, decades, not hearing directly from God. God was working through the commonplace. Miracles in the Bible come in clusters. Remember, they're way spaced out. They come in sections and that's it. They're not the norm. God does not need to do 
what we call miracles. There are no miracles to God. Miracles implies taking more of his power than something else. That, that doesn't apply to him. There are no miracles from God's side. It, but he doesn't need to do the cataclysmic. And we see that here. Uh, could he have opened the earth and swallowed Haman? Sure he could have. Could he have struck him with, how about here's Haman up on top of the gallows, and he's tightening up the rope himself to make sure there's no problem. And God strikes him with lightning, and everybody sees it. Ooh, that would have done it. Or Haman walks into the king, and he clutches his chest, and he falls dead of a heart attack. God didn't do any of that. It's just comes across as normal, everyday happenstance, so-called. And uh, he uses mundane things that we would call mundane. Uh, I think God's going to use a king who can't sleep, who's going to spend the entire night reading through boring historical records stored in clay pots. That's not very cataclysmic, is it? And yet here's Ahasuerus. Go pick some records and read them to me. And all night long, he sits and, listens, sits and listens to this boring drivel until there's a little nugget that catches his attention first thing in the morning. And it's about Mordecai not being honored. And all this while, maybe Mordecai is going, so much for the king's thankfulness. I save his life. He doesn't do anything. Maybe he wondered that. I don't know. Nothing happens until here the king can't sleep. He reads this account. Hey, what's been done for this guy? Nothing. And then immediately, whose feet's out there? Oh, it's Haman. Oh, Haman's coming to ask the king to execute Mordecai. Oh, the king says, uh, what should it be done? What should be done to the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman and his humility says, Well, who would the king want to honor more than me? I mean, dude, that's an easy question. So, here's what, now he'd been thinking about this. Here's what I, he's probably dreaming about it at night. Whenever the king asked me, I'm going to. And so the king asks him, what should be? He says, oh, wear the king's robe and put his crown on his head and get on the king's horse and walk through town. And one of the most noble princes can scream aloud. This is what the king does to those he wants to honor. And the king says, outstanding. I'll go do it to Mordecai. Huh? Say, what? So off he goes. And uh, that was one long tour, I'll tell you. And he goes all through the city and he comes back to the palace and he drops off Mordecai and the horse and he puts his sack over his head and he hot-foots it through the back alleys home in utter shame. And he goes back to his wife and friends who he just had a bragging party with. He says, say, there's been some new developments. Here's what happened. And they said, uh-oh, this doesn't look good for you, buddy. And of course, they, they were very superstitious. They would have seen that as a bad omen, bad luck. The king's favors turned, uh, tread lightly. And so just then, verse 13, okay, Haman's depressed. He's just been utterly, utterly humiliated. I mean, the, the biggest balloon is popped with what? The tiniest pin. I had a pastor friend in Alaska who I really appreciate. He would always say to people, 
do me a favor and don't put me on a pedestal because it really hurts when I fall off. (laughs) And he meant that. Haman's way up on a pedestal. And the, the tiniest little poke deflates it. We have to wonder here. I don't know. I, I'm, gonna, I'm not adding to the text, but I'm just speculating. Had Haman responded with an actual godly sorrow? I mean, what if, what if Haman had gone home and fell on his face in, in the dark and said, Lord God, I've denied you. I've hated your people. I know I'm wrong. What do I do now? I dare say that man would have come, that man would have found the Lord. But he didn't do that. Here comes the messenger, chapter 6, verse 13. Hey, good news, Haman. Verse 14, while they were yet talking with him. I know that's see, that's exactly how Haman felt. You see that? Object, object lesson. He was bawling and rubbing his eyes like that, I'm sure. And uh, the messenger says, while they were yet talking with him, verse 14, came the king's chamberlain and hasted to bring Haman into the banquet Esther had prepared for him. Good news, Haman. It's time for the party. There's three people, and you're one of them. You better show up. And Haman's thinking, I'm, I'm really, frankly, not in the mood for a party, um, unless it has pity in front of it. And so they go to this banquet. Chapter 7, verse 1, So the king and and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen. The king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? It shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. It's the third time he's told her, I will give you anything you ask, even up to half the kingdom. And we asked the question before, why didn't she say, Okay, I'll take, uh, how about I'll take the northern half? I, I don't know. Practic- practically, I look and I think that would have been pretty reasonable. Not only would the Jews have been safe in her half, but um, they would have had a lot of area to, to roam. But that wasn't how the Lord directed. He's behind the scenes here. And uh, so the king says it. What do you want? Verse 3, Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. If we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. So she said, uh, if, if me and my people were just going to be sold as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. I would have lived as a slave. But there is somebody that's trying to kill every person who's blood related to me, your queen. And again, keep in mind, Esther had hid her identity this whole time. At the beginning, she was told, don't make your nationality known. Everyone knew Mordecai's nationality. But apparently... We think, well, wouldn't they know if they're related, she's the same? Apparently, the connection between her and Mordecai isn't known. So Haman sitting here, he has no idea that Mordecai he hates and this queen 
that she was raised by Mordecai like his own daughter. He doesn't know what nationality Esther is. And again, at this point, what's he thinking? Is he, does he realize this is not going a good direction? Or is he thinking, huh, this happened to somebody else too. I wonder who. Of course, the kings... Now, again, this could have gone one of both ways. What, what are the Jews praying and hoping for? That the king would respond just like he did. Instead of him saying, well, hey, that's how it goes... Verse 5, then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen. You see, just picture this room. It just got real small. And picture the king rising up and his face is turning red. Big booming voice. Who is he? And where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. Yeah, I guess so. So with a boldness bolstered by desperation, Esther states her position in response to the king's request. She reveals her nationality for the first time and stood ready to bear whatever consequences would come with the king's decision. She rightly claimed that her people had been sold for destruction, their doom had been sealed by decree. And then the king responds exactly like Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews had hoped. He's outraged that anyone would attempt to kill the queen and her people. So the king asks, who's behind it? (laughs) She points him out as the culprit. So here Haman's exposed and caught in the net of his own pride. And uh, all of a sudden this comes full circle. Now he learns the queen's nationality. And uh, what a time to learn it, huh? I imagine had he known this earlier, he would have treaded a little more carefully. He would have connived and plotted differently. See, that's the amazing thing, one of the amazing things about pride. It thinks, it's, it, thinks it knows how to order its steps. But all God has to do to destroy the proud is keep back a little bit of information and let it out at the right time. That's all He has to do. Doesn't have to be lightning. Doesn't have to be heart attack. Doesn't have to be earth opening up. He can do that. He has done that. But He doesn't have to do that. I mean, there's this little visual here. It's actually pretty good. I don't have it blown up, but I'll just kind of explain it to you. It shows these, I guess you could call it the, the, the three major faces of pride. And it shows this guy making these different faces. Um, the face number one is smugness. A, a proud person has this air of, I got things under control. I got this figured out. I can handle this. We're good. We're good. Um, I'm okay. You're okay. So there's a smug superiority. Face number two is anger. When it's plans, his plans get, or her plans get tread on. 
Other people get recognized. Somebody stands in the way of their supposed dream or achievement or goal. And how, do, how, how does a proud person respond? They get very angry. How dare you usurp authority in my kingdom? By the way, that's, what's mankind's big problem? He still tries to have a crown on his head as a usurper ruling over a stolen kingdom. That, that's man's fundamental problem. And that's universal. What's the problem with every lost person? That's the root problem right there. Everything stems from that. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. It, it, by the way, counseling uh, with even with lost people can, it's a great forum for the gospel. Somebody can come and say, I have, they'll, I mean, name your issue. It's an, an addiction or it's a relational problem or it's a child raising problem or whatever. And, and, and they want help and they're thinking, I, this is my issue right here. And really the issue's down here. And if they can see it that way, if their eyes can be open to see, wait a minute, this is, this is just a symptom of my greater issue. can really open their eyes and bring them to Christ. I mean, the fundamental issue is their lostness. Uh, the, the other issues come from that. So there's the faces of anger, smugness, then, or, or the faces of pride, smugness, then anger. And eventually, you know what's going to come? Fear. Fear. Now think about why. Now, uh, chronologically, when does that come? I can't tell you. It's going to be different for every person. But, you know, here's a guy essentially trusting himself. The rug gets jerked out. He finally comes to the stark realization, I'm up to my neck in the mire, and there's not a thing I can do about it. Not only that, I've rejected God. And I've been such a jerk face to everybody I know that now I'm left with no help. Now all of a sudden I cry for help and there's, there isn't compassion. It's like uh, Proverbs 2. I will mock when your fear cometh, when desolation cometh as a whirlwind. This is what's happening to Haman. And, and of course, I have called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and you've not regarded why? 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 Because all this time, God's reaching out, yes, to a man like Haman. Reaching to him, reaching to him, reaching to him. All day long, I've stretched forth my hands to a disobedient, gainsaying people. And Haman says, no, no, no. And finally, here comes fear. In a moment. I mean, you're talking one, a one-day period. This guy goes from a bragging party about everywhere he's heading and all that he's going to do and how much the king loves him to begging a Jew to let him live. 24 hours or so. My, how things can turn on a dime, can't they? Smugness, fear, 
or smugness, anger, fear. Let's look up some verses. Uh, let's see. Will, will you go to Proverbs 15? Bennett, will you go to Proverbs 16? Jeremiah, I'm going to read Isaiah 2.12. Who else? One of you guys want to read too? Rachel, will you read Isaiah 13.11 in a minute? All right, who's in uh, Proverbs 15? Will? Would you read Proverbs 15.25 nice and loud? The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Uh, Bennett, you in Proverbs 16? Can you read? There's a few in here. Pro- verse 5? How about verse uh, 18? Actually, Holly, can you go to Proverbs 21.4? A minute. Okay, so you read that one again. I'm sorry. Uh, pride goes before destruction and the Holy Spirit before fall. Okay, pride goes before destruction. Think of like a train, right? You see a train coming, and what's always on the front? We get stuck at trains a lot at our new house. I don't want to admit, sometimes when you go around the military base, how it's tempting to race to that when there's a train coming. Don't do that. Right? Uh, but pride goes before destruction. Just like the engine goes before the train, you see pride, and in the cars behind it, you can just write destruction. It's, it's coming. Guaranteed it's coming. All right. Uh, verse 19. Better it is to leave a spirit all right, who has Isaiah 2.12? Jeremiah, can you read it loud? Does the volume go any higher than that? <laughs> can you read it louder, please? Huh? No, I can see lips, but I don't hear anything. Thank you. The day of the Lord shall be upon the proud and lofty. And think about that. A lot of this is God's going to leave the deal with in one decisive blow. I mean, what does it say? What Paul said when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction cometh upon them. Boom! Just like Haman. <laughs> um, okay, who had, uh, you had, which one did you have, Rachel? Isaiah 1311? Th- 1311. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness. And then Isaiah, or let's see, Holly had Proverbs 21 4, right? And high look and a proud heart and the falling of the wicked is 
Okay, so uh, think about, again, God's hate list in Proverbs 6. These things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are, he uses the A word, abomination. What's the first one? A proud look, the smugness. Uh, don't get me wrong. The uh, LGBTQ, dash lifestyle, it keeps getting longer. That's an abomination to God, but <laughs> that's not listed at the top of his hate list. Pride is. Now, by the way, that, that lifestyle comes from defiance against God. But our pride when we manifest it, is an abomination. It's a direct affront to God. Let me read Isaiah 14, those I wills. When I set myself against him, I am basically siding with Lucifer and saying, I'm king, I'm Lord, I will be the decision maker. I mean, Lucifer did it in the universe, I do it in my life. This is my, I belong to me. <laughs> and uh, by the way, fundamentally, why the gospel so hated? You know, the gospel fundamentally isn't about heaven and hell. It's largely pride and humility. It's man willing to get off his usurped throne and prostrate himself before the God that made him and come his way of salvation and admit he cannot save himself and that he's a wretched, vile rebel. That's why the gospel is so hateful when it's rightfully preached. You can preach the tenets of the gospel, you know, and it's possible to do it in such a way that nobody gets offended. I mean, you, oh, everybody here is a sinner. But wait! God has a wonderful plan for you! Just because He loves you. And He wants to take you to heaven. So, the solution to those mistakes of yours is that Jesus died on the cross. And all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart to go to heaven and get everything you want out of life. And then go to heaven too. See, what I just said is all about you. That's so common today, it's disgusting. In the Gospels, that's why showing man what he is in the sight of God is so critical. Because it knocks him off his perch. Somebody can make a profession to Christ and never take the, never take the crown off their head. <laughs> never. But a real understanding of human depravity... Get this thing off my head. He's king. He's Lord. And yes, there's a struggle with sin in the believer's life, but fundamentally, any one of you that's saved, truly saved this morning, I know if I could pin you down and say, you have your moments of struggle, and you know it, and we're going to talk about that in the next service, the, the battle of sin. But fundamentally, I don't have to convince you who's God and who's Lord and what you are. You know, Right? You know. The gospel does that. So, a pride again has been called the parent sin. Rightly so. It's an excellent name. Because it, it, it was the first and it led to everything else. Lucifer fell. And Adam and Eve, of course, follow him. So, how's Haman doing these days? Let's go back to Haman for a minute. Um...
The king arising, verse 7, from the banquet of wine and his wrath went into the palace garden. Imagine the king is hot. And he's so mad he doesn't even want to talk to anybody and he just storms out. And he's, he's, he's walking, just seem like a caged animal. He's pacing in the garden. He's trying to process this. I loved that guy. I gave him my signet ring. I trusted him. And he's probably saying to himself, give me one more reason to get rid of that guy. Well, he got it here in a minute. And so Haman gets up and goes, uh-oh, instead of bowing to God, what does he do? He bows before Esther the Jew. He falls down on this couch she's seated on. And he's just, he probably maybe grabbing her, just saying, please, please let me live. I'll, I'll be a servant. I'll, I'll, I'll wash Mordecai's feet. Just let me live. And just then the king comes back in. What's this look like? Now the king's looking for a reason to get rid of this guy. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? Now he yelled that, I'm sure. Is he going to physically abuse the queen now on top of it? And uh, as he says that, his servants are taking out a bag and they're putting it over Haman's head. They know how this is going to end. D-U-N. Done. So not waiting to hear Haman's explanation of what looked like an attack on the queen, the king called for the executioners to come and take Haman away, covering Haman's head as they did so. At that moment, one of the chamberlains named Harbona, if you just... Look at verse 9. I, I think, did, did these guys like Haman? I doubt it. It's hard to like a person like that. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, who knows, maybe Mordecai had been bragging about this thing. Uh, behold also, the gallows, 50 cubits high. You know those, that 75-footer out there? Um, and he, he adds this, which Haman had made for Mordecai. You know the guy you just honored? Yeah, he made it for him. Hey, just saying, those happen to be standing right over there. In fact, you can probably see him from the palace. You probably could see it from the palace. This guy just volunteers the information just in case the king found it useful. And the king said, hang him thereon. And now, I mean, he, he made this thing so tall to be able to see from all over the city. And now there he is strung up on it before the day's over. He stayed up all night building this thing. He didn't even make it till lunch the next day himself before he was strung up on it. How quickly the net can close. And the thing is, here's the thing. God can always close it that quickly. That, that's why Romans stresses. Treasuring up wrath unto the day of wrath and revelation of the night, righteous judgment of God. Remember the illustration? It's like throwing bricks in the attic. And he's saying everybody's doing that. They don't see the clouds of wrath. But one thing that produces the fear of God in a person as they're being prepared to, to understand the gospel is that not only is their burden of sin getting bigger, not only is the justice of God getting more and more terrifying, they have no say when it falls. And it could justly fall right now. So Haman strung up. 
there's, there really is an irony in the fact that it was a false accusation that was instrumental in sending Haman to the gallows. He wasn't trying to abuse the queen. He's begging for his life. So he's falsely accused and sent to the gallows. And uh, those gallows were built based on a false accusation of Mordecai. Amazing how that turns full circle. Again, Peter reminds us God gives grace to the humble, but God resists the proud. God actively shoves the proud away from him. What, what a statement. It's like the old illustration of standing on ice and pushing a tree. <laughs> Tree's not going anywhere, but you sure are. You push on God and he's not going anywhere, but you sure are. I shove you away. He's going to resist you. So pride is a serious thing, and uh, I dare say it's it, it can appear very at home, even in religion. Sometimes I think it's easy to view that one as not that big of a deal. There's other bigger issues. Not a lot bigger than that one. We're still getting, man, I wanted to finish this today, but let me just skip that section. I'll just touch on it. Um, I mean, think of the mind of Christ in Philippians 2, the kenosis passage. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It talks about him humbling himself. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul reminds us, God hasn't chosen the who's who to be Christians. That, ought to, that, that passage ought to humble us. You think, well, I'm just really, I'm just so gifted and such an asset to the body of Christ. Paul says, look, God didn't search out the, the best of the best to fill the church because the glory goes to Him. And if you look at the ranks of Christianity in history, the vast, vast majority have not been the wealthy, influential movers and shakers. I've, uh, and I know what they mean by this. You know, one author I've read pastor well-known you know he advocates the minister you come to a town make a list of the hundred most influential people in your community and then you target breakfast appointments lunch appointments with all hundred before the year's out and the reason you do this is because that's got to be the core of your church because if these people come to christ that's the leadership you need. And that's the influence in the community you need. And that, that's the best way to build a church. Uh, compare that with the end of 1 Corinthians. It's completely backwards. There's no such thing as, wow, that person would be such an asset to the church. Says who? That's human wisdom saying, how do you know that? You don't, you, we don't know that. <laughs> He that glorieth, he says, let him glory in the Lord. All right, let, let's end here, though. Think of evidences of pride in our life. And, and we can actually trace these through Esther with Haman. What, what does pride do? Pride, uh, pride talks about itself a lot. It likes to have bragging parties. And now it may cloak it with pseudo-humility, but it, it really likes the conversation about them. Um, pride can't stand anyone who doesn't gush over them. I mean, if this person doesn't fall in line and recognize something about how special I am, I, I just, I really can't stand them. 
I just, I, I have, I, I don't like them from that point forward until they fall down and acknowledge my worthiness. Pride counts on itself to solve its own problems. Its knee-jerk reaction isn't prayer and humility, it's self-help. I got this. Pride rejoices in the downfall of others. Remember, Haman builds the gallows, and then he just goes on his way rejoicing. What a good day this has been! I mean, you see someone you're struggling with, and, and they're, they seem to prosper. I mean, you seethe with rage over that? And let's, I mean, Psalm 37. <laughs> I, I see the wicked spreading himself like a green bay tree. This almost is going, Lord, we have a problem here. Why are evil people flourishing? The stock, his stock markets all go through the roof. His car never quits. His dog never dies. His house is always maintained. He always gets the best promotion. He never gets sick. What's the deal? That's what the psalmist is saying there. The Lord's saying, you have a perspective problem. This is all the heaven that guy's going to get. And it looks that way for now. But it's not going to be that way forever. Um, pride thinks of itself better than anyone else. You know, Haman, what, who would the king want to delight to honor more than me? Uh, pride doesn't like to see others succeed. I mean, how did Haman like, how did he, did he, I mean, what was his attitude? I cannot wait to take this fine man Mordecai through the city. I'm just so excited to get to exalt him because he really, he really is a good man, you know? And uh, how are you guys doing? Don't worry, we're just finishing up Sunday school and then heading into the morning. So we're actually late. I'm, I'm talking longer than I should be. And they're so nice, they haven't thrown books at me yet. Isn't that nice of them? Um, so... Pride doesn't like to see others succeed. And it definitely doesn't want to take part in their success. And pride doesn't like to admit when it's wrong. I mean, all this time, Haman could have just said, boy, did I blow it. I've been a real idiot. Nope, 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 nope. Even at the point of begging for his life, he still, he still would not eat crow. He wouldn't do it. All right, so we'll close with this. What, pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, says Proverbs 16, 18. What, what kind of falls come if we don't deal with pride in our life right now? What, what, what are the consequences? We, we mentioned one, God does what to the proud? Resist the proud. So I don't deal with pride. What consequence number one is I can't have fellowship with God. There's only one God and it's not me. And so long as I think I'm him, we can't walk together. Uh, what else hap what, uh, what happens to human relationships when pride enters? What does it do to them? It rots them from the inside out. Can you be a, and you understand when I say successful, I'm talking about biblically successful. Can you be a God-honoring successful parent without humility? How about a husband or a wife? Can, can you have harmony without humility? It doesn't exist without humility. It can't happen. How about a ruined testimony? It's funny. 
The lost world that hates God, they sure know a Christian shouldn't be puffed up, and they're so quick to notice one that is. By the way, it's okay to say, I don't know. You know that? It's okay to say, I don't know. You don't, you're a Christian, you don't have to know everything. You get asked a hard question, say, hey, I don't know. It's a good question. I'm going to pray and I'll, I'll study that. But I don't know. You don't have to have all the answers. God does. You don't. Um, how about missed service opportunities? If I'm so busy staring at me, how can I pour into others? Really, I, I can't. It's gone. I told you the story some time ago, and this is true of... It's one of the scary things about men being in church leadership. It, it, men are proud. They can be. And God ordains this, but man alive. I share some of you heard the story. A pastor, my pastor in Alaska told me this. A, a friend of his. The guy was, in fact, he was just, he, he would hold counseling sessions and go to breakfast with ladies alone just to help them spiritually. It, it's not a good idea. It doesn't, doesn't look right. And this pastor friend of mine, he went to him. He said, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, it doesn't look right. And you're setting yourself up for, you know what the guy said? That will never happen to me. It wasn't a year later. It happened to him. You know why I want to set those boundaries in my marriage? Because it can happen to me. I want safeguards. We ought to want safeguards. We find ourselves saying, I can handle it. Oh boy. <laughs> we can't. All right, we've got to stop. We're way late. I'm sorry. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, for this time to... Lord, even uh, unpleasant people like Haman, uh, you include his story for a good reason. What a warning. And uh, we know if we know ourselves at all, we know how wretchedly pride, prideful we can be. How slow to deal with sin, how quick to blame others, how quick to twist things and make ourselves look squeaky clean. Help us to be a people marked by humility. Not because we obsess over how bad we are, but because we are focused on how glorious and wonderful you are. And everything else gets put in its place when they do that. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us and your patience with us. Amen.